I don't think that you can do the future that we envision without Bitcoin. Hello there from the United Kingdom. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today I've got an interview with Matt Hill and Aaron Greenspan from Start9, where we're going to be discussing privacy. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors. And first up today, we're going to talk about BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services. So with BlockFi, you can open up an interest account and you can earn money on your Bitcoin. I've been a customer coming up to a year now and I've made nearly one Bitcoin in interest. So yeah, I love the service. I love it at the end of each month, seeing my balance and seeing my Bitcoin work for me. Also with BlockFi, you can use your Bitcoin as collateral and you can take out a USD loan and you can also fund your BlockFi account directly from your Bitcoin wallet. With the BlockFi mobile app, you can now fully manage your account on the go and access all of their services. And they've got so much more stuff coming this year. If you're interested in checking out BlockFi, I recommend you do your own research and then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Also, we have Kraken, the mighty Kraken, the best place for buying, selling and trading Bitcoin. And why are they the best? Well, let's talk about this. Firstly, they have world-class security, which makes them the most trusted cryptocurrency exchange on the market. And with their 24-7-365 customer support, they are going to help you with any issue you have whoever you are and wherever you are. They also have the most comprehensive suite of tools available for buying Bitcoin. So if you're new to Bitcoin, if you head over to Kraken.com, it could not be easier to sign up and start buying Bitcoin. And with their beautiful mobile first app, you can now buy Bitcoin on the go. With margin trading, futures and their OTC desk, Kraken has every single trading option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. Find out more at Kraken.com or download the app. It's available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Okay, so onto the show today, and I have Matt and Aaron from Start9 on. So over the last few years, the importance of retaining your personal data and privacy online is becoming more and more obvious, especially highlighted by events like what happened with Facebook and the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Protecting your data and keeping private online isn't that easy, and it can make the experience worse. I mean, I tried turning off all of my location data on my phone, trying to hide that stuff from Google, and you know what? It just made the experience of using your phone worse. So it's a tricky thing. It's a tricky thing knowing which data you should be given out, which you shouldn't be. And this is being addressed by Start9. Their plug-and-play embassy is a Bitcoin node with an inbuilt private messaging app and password manager. They sent me one out. I've got it here. I'm going to be setting it up on the weekend, having a play with it, seeing how it works. But before that, I did want to get the guys on the show and talk about it and talk about privacy itself. So in this episode, we get into this. We get into why online privacy is important, why it's important to retain your data. So I hope you enjoy this one. I really like what this team is trying to do. If you've got any feedback on the show, you know you can hit me up. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Also, out on Defiance, the trailer has dropped for my new show, which is coming soon, which is called 1,333 Days. It tells this incredible story of this heavy metal band, The Ghost Inside. The trailer's up on Defiance. Go and check it out. Outside of that, love you all. Have a great weekend, and I will see you all soon. Matt, Aaron, how are you both doing? Doing great. Thanks for having us on, Peter. Yeah, I'm doing 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 very good. Thanks so much. Uh, it's great to get you on. When uh, When Eric referred you to me, he said, you got to check out these guys. Uh, I went to your website. Let me tell you, actually, straight away, I really like your website. Um, cool. Just love the simplicity nice. of it. It kind of it kind of suits what you're doing. Um, 
But yeah, so but I do have the confession. I bought your node. It arrived, and I cleared up my office and I put it away with all my Bitcoin stuff. And I never got around to open it up, which which people all say are all typical UP with regards to a node. But it sat here, and I've, I've actually got to get it set up. So perhaps after this session, I'll, I'll, I'll do that and let you guys know about it. It's pretty messed uh, up, yeah. Today, to be honest. <laughs> You'll you'll be uh, pleasantly surprised when you get to it. It only takes a, takes about a minute. Right. Okay. Well, I'm going to get on that then. Okay. So listen, look, privacy is very very important right now. It's a hot topic, and Bitcoin's a hot topic, and we've got a world that's going absolutely crazy. It feels like we're starting to see a shift in the way people are thinking. Um, but I know we're in our own little Bitcoin bubble here, but. For everything that's going on kind of in the world right now, these weird times, Matt, you seem to be perfectly positioned as a business that can really provide people with the type of kind of products that they want to, to live a life with a with a high level of privacy. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, that is our overarching goal as a company is to afford non-technical individuals the ability to exist uh, on the internet whether that is the traditional internet or, you know, sort of the tour side of things in total privacy without trusting anyone, uh, because that is really the crux of the issue is that to obtain privacy today uh, in a non-technical user-friendly way, you have to entrust your, your private data and communications channels to a central third party. There are very few avenues for, attempt, uh, for achieving real uh, self-privacy and it requires a lot of technical expertise to do. So you sent me a, some notes beforehand. And one of the things you put in there is like privacy is a necessary prerequisite for an individual for individual liberty and a free society. Do you want to talk me, talk me through this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so privacy gives affords a few benefits um, that invariably lead to a free society or lack thereof if they're violated. So the first one is that, you know, it's sort of a insurance policy against political uncertainty. You know, we've seen throughout history that just because something was permissible yesterday or is permissible today uh, to say and do does not mean that it will be permissible tomorrow. And so you may want to have conversations in private today uh, that are perfectly fine, but that you think could become dangerous in the future under a regime change, for instance. So privacy, you know, allows you to exist without worrying about who's going to come into office next and use what you said against you. Another benefit is that it protects you against extortion uh, and manipulation um, by people who know a lot about you. It's sort of like tipping your cards in the game of poker. Uh, if your opponent knows your cards, they know how to play you. So if everything I say and do and everywhere I go is tracked and monitored, uh, the analytics and opportunities for manipulation uh, against me increase likewise. One that's less talked about, but is also very important, is that privacy affords an environment for experimentation, uh, tinkering. So humans, I mean, you can see this even with children. I know when I was a kid, I valued my privacy very much. That wasn't something that was taught to me. It wasn't an ideological consideration. It was a very biological impulse. I wanted to go off on my own and enjoy my, my private time and think and, and you know perform experiments on building and, and feel free to make mistakes where I wasn't going to be judged by any onlooker. Um, and when you have a surveillance state, that feeling of constantly being watched, actually, I think it squelches creativity, 
And then, you know, kind of to the first point, you know, this, this idea that regime change, uh, I, I want to bring up a saying that is used very often that I was taught in schools uh, when I was young uh, that I think is very widely misunderstood, which is the very common phrase of absolute power corrupts absolutely. And um, I think that this phrase is most commonly held to believe that if you grant an individual absolute power, that if an individual rises to power, uh, that they will invariably corrupt, that this individual will become, you know, a all-powerful dictator, corrupt person. And I, I don't believe that for a second. I think integrity is a real thing and that individuals can rise in power and maintain their principles and integrity uh, just fine. And that we have plenty of examples of this throughout history. What doesn't maintain its integrity, what that phrase really applies to is transgenerational political systems or organizations of any kind, because what corrupts is the changeover, right? So if a system has enormous amounts of power, even the people, the people in charge of that system today may be totally fine and benevolent and remain that way, but their successors may not be. So over time, systems with absolute power will corrupt absolutely, even if it takes a few hundred or even thousand years. And so that is what privacy affords is that you can almost predict with certainty that a system that is growing in power will also grow in corruption. And so you need to be very careful about what you do today so that it won't be used against you tomorrow. That reminds me of something Andreas said that I, uh, I, I was watching one of his presentations in preparation for my interview with Brian Armstrong last week. Mm. And he said, uh, you lose your privacy today and you will punish later. One of the problems with privacy is that you lose your mm. privacy every day but you don't pay the price for that until perhaps a lot later. And you can't immediately yes. identify the moment at which your loss of privacy goes from something that is an inconvenience to a deadly risk. Yep. Yeah. And there are, I mean, there are just multitudes of examples throughout history where exactly that happens. New regime comes into power, calls all of the old supporters uh, or the supporters of the previous regime. And all of that stuff is recorded and, and details in records that are being kept for a long time. Like that's, that's exactly how you'd hunt those people down. But I'm sat here in the UK thinking, no, that's not going to be a problem for me. And, and I imagine people sat in the US or Australia and places like that thinking it's not going to be an issue for them. So uh, are we being naive? Yeah. Well, it might not be an issue for you, but what about your children and grandchildren and, you know, Political systems take time to evolve and corrupt. So, you know, I, we should be planning for the future, I think. Can you, can you give me some examples where this has happened in history? Oh, boy. Concrete examples. Um, yeah, I think uh, one that comes to mind very quickly, the Iranian Revolution um, in the 80s uh, is a great example where you have uh, a fairly democratic and erring more and more towards a democratic, I guess it was a monarchy even at the time, but um, a very sort of liberal and progressive kind of system, um, which gets uh, sort of taken over, at least the revolution is hijacked by Islamic supremists. Um, and yeah, suddenly um, all, of, all of those previous sort of academics that were leading that revolution are now imprisoned. And yeah, I mean, it's exactly the kind of thing that we're, we're afraid of. And, you know, even this interview being recorded for all time is the exact kind of thing that could implicate us if something were to happen in the UK or the United States. Okay. So what you're, but, but this is a public interview. So we, we've chosen to make this public. What you're saying is that this could affect private communications as well. 
No, that, that's a good point. We have chosen to keep it public. Uh, in this case, it's more like, um, yeah, just the fact that it, it's permanent could be used to implicate us. But um, yeah, I mean, if we were having this communication in private and perhaps we were, you know, uh, so for example, like the Start9 private chat where we're developing these technologies, which are specifically meant to enforce privacy, that's the kind of thing where if those conversations were made public under a regime that wanted to establish a surveillance state of some kind, of course, that would be extremely implicating. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, having private channels in order to discuss this kind of thing is a, exactly what gives um, political dissidents, and in some cases, political dissidents fighting for freedom against regimes that are trying to take that away. Um, yeah, I mean, it makes the, the lack of privacy makes that really problematic. So, so Peter, also when it comes to financial privacy too, right? Like, I mean, this is this is what Bitcoin and and you know other privacy networks and layer two technologies are designed to protect is that money is communication as well, and yeah, so. And it's it's a really interesting time for this to happen, and interesting yeah. time for you guys to be working on this because we have this explosive acceleration in technology. You know, we've been through the experience of Snowden. And understanding that everything is being tracked and monitored and and uh, uh, by the NSA, um, but we're also at a time where we've got this massive growth in AI, yeah, data storage in the cloud. Like, there's so much going on everywhere with regards to technology. It's almost kind of like we can't come back from this. So, but it's not. It's almost like nobody's really thought through the implications for the individuals. I think Apple, as a major tech company, is, is thinking about this. But we're at this yeah. kind of real cr- cross section, and at the same time, the world is going absolutely fucking mad at the moment. Um, we've got a massive growth in surveillance technology in the UK, where I, I live, also with terrible libel laws. So it just it does feel like Start Nine are kind of positioned just at the right time for, for things that I think people are going to start demanding outside of like your typical kind of tech nerds. So, you know, we have been surprised by some of the feedback and reactions we've gotten from various demographics that we speak with about our product and technology in that um, one of the more responsive groups is actually the baby boom generation, which is traditionally not <laughs> recognized as the most, uh, technical or, you know, uh, on board with the most radical new technologies. And, you know, the, the statement of Google is reading your emails uh, seems to resonate very, very deeply with that generation. I think in part because they can remember a time in history, uh, not too, in the not too distant past, where privacy was sort of the default that cash was, was prevalent and phone calls were made and wiretaps were required uh, a warrant. Um, and suddenly everything that you do is public by default. Uh, no warrants are needed for anything anymore, you know, in practice. And, uh, and there's this idea that, you know, a, a return to the way things used to be is, is a powerful, a powerful concept. So, you know, we have not found our primary support to be just amongst the, you know, hardline Bitcoin privacy advocates. But, you know, this is a very human issue. This is a very, uh, sensitive human issue that people feel very passionately about, even if they don't understand the implementation, uh, how we're accomplishing it. Because at the end of the day, the, the product that we are selling, even though the technology underneath it may be on the edge, and it is, uh, the product itself is actually very friendly and familiar. You know, Gary Leland is one of our 
biggest supporters. He was one of the first people to buy an embassy um, and has just ranted and raved about how he was able to set it up and have a full Bitcoin node running over Tor, as well as a private messaging app, as well as a self-hosted password manager in a matter of seconds with absolutely no technical knowledge or expertise of how it was working at all. And with no compromise, no sacrifice in the self-sovereignty aspect of it, there's no trust as part of that setup process. So what would you say to somebody who has listened to this, who perhaps has never really taken privacy seriously? You know, they're not perhaps a Bitcoiner. They have Facebook. They use every Google service. They have all their location tracking set up on their phone. They're, I would say, the kind of person who's unknowingly uh, put themselves in a position where everything they do is being tracked and recorded. And Perhaps when you explain this and they'll say, well, it's not really affecting my life. Yeah. So we're not actually out to convert everyone right now. Um, mm -hmm. the, the world is doing our job for us. There is a growing number of people who are seeing invasion of privacy uh, and censorship, by the way, as a corollary to everything that we're doing as a, as a problem and who are passionate about finding and implementing that solution both for themselves and for their loved ones. And that market is is plenty to sustain us and it is growing rapidly by the day. Uh, now, the people who are not aware or who don't care, um, we think are won over gradually, again, by the world doing our job for us and through education. So we are you know, implementing educational tracks so that people can become aware of what the problem is in case you don't know, you know deep dives into how our technology helps solve the problem, you know, will be available for everyone. And Aaron actually is one of the leaders on the team in terms of uh, education and his ability to explain this to non-technical users. I was just going to say, Peter, um, you made this comment a, a couple a couple minutes ago that there doesn't seem like there's a way back from the sort of proliferation of data and surveillance that sort of seems to be growing, especially in the Western world. Um, and I think, you know, some of what Matt is, Matt is sort of getting at is that we disagree fundamentally for, at Start9, you know, as the Internet has become uh, the way that people interact in their day to day life, as it's sort of taken on more and more from dating to getting jobs and everything else. I mean, there's been no alternative for a long time to putting all of that data out there. It was sort of, you know, the, the cost that we were willing to pay in order to have all of the convenience and the connectivity that we have today. But, you know, Start9, what we're attempting to do is offer that same exact convenience, the same apps, uh, the same functionality, but served and, and sort of architected in a completely novel way, which removes that trade-off. Suddenly, it's your data. It is possessed literally on this, you know, three-inch box or whatever, um, it doesn't leave that box and it is your, your data is your private property in a very literal and physical sense. And we think, yeah, I mean, gradually over time as the apps become better and there are more of them, I, I just see no reason why even someone who doesn't really care about privacy, given the choice between having your emails read by Google or not, supposing there's feature parity, it's just, you know, it's like, it's a no brainer. So we think as the as our software gets better, we'll just it'll just gradually sort of spread because it's it's a no brainer. All right, okay. So as I said, it's we're in this kind of weird world at the moment. I'm I'm starting to find that almost the things I expected from more authoritarian kind of countries are happening in the West. I, I mean, I'm kind of worried about the slippery slope that we're heading down in the UK. 
that's happening in the US. And there is this growing kind of desire for a sovereign individual that's kind of that I, I, I say it's come out of Bitcoin because it's almost like the money started this for a, for a lot of people. Um, but I don't want Bitcoin to be the prerequisite because I think a lot of people are still put off by Bitcoin. I still think it has a reputation problem. Yeah. But you guys often, you guys talk about privacy at the base, like this concrete plan for achieving untrusted, uncompromising and unstoppable privacy. You're starting in the home. So if you were to like talk about this, layer by layer, building up. What are the things that people can actually start start doing now outside of even the money? Yeah. Um, so I'm glad you brought up Bitcoin. Uh, obviously, that is an important thing to us and to many. Uh, Bitcoin showed how. It was, it was a novel, uh, you know, it was a novel way to, to assemble uh, existing technologies uh, where, you know, the the whole was greater than the sum of the parts. Bitcoin is a new thing. It is a new technology. And it showed us how you can achieve uh, decentralized systems, uh, how you can build money in a decentralized way. And it is, to this day, the, the beating heart and, and the battle cry, if you will, of, of this whole movement. And it is central to it. I personally consider it somewhat indispensable. Uh, I don't think that you can do the future that we envision without Bitcoin, but it is not the whole story. Bitcoin itself is vulnerable on top of centralized infrastructure. The push for everyone to run a node, for instance, uh, means nothing if all those nodes are being run on AWS and DigitalOcean. Like we Ethereum. really do, yeah, exactly like Ethereum, and even nobody's running those nodes. So there's like three nodes, and they're running on clouds. Uh, it's just you could snip it, right? Is like, that true? There, there are very few people who run full archival Ethereum nodes. Light clients uh, are abundant, but when we were, so me, Aaron, Keegan, Aiden, were all at Salt uh, prior to leaving Salt and starting up Start9, and we had to run a full archival Ethereum node. So we know very intimately uh, how difficult that is to do and how few people are doing it because we were in touch with members of the Ethereum community as we were setting this up for Salt to, you know, get questions answered and get, you know, sort of collaboration. And it, it's just very rare. Uh, <laughs> it was our it was our DevOps guy at the time who really dealt with the pain of that and made sure <laughs> that we all knew how painful it was all of the time. Yeah. Why, why uh, is it so difficult, though? Is, was it just the volume of data that's being generated? Not just that, no. Um, the implementations themselves. So Parity is what we ended up using because... Uh, what was the first one? Guess? Yeah, guess. Yeah. Just flat out kept breaking during the sync. Like it just, we like couldn't sync a node. And this is common. It just, there are just issues with the setup and maintenance of the geth nodes. And we switched to parity and that worked really well. And then that would break sometimes. And so we had backups that were running where, you know, it was very expensive in terms of compute and disk space. And, uh, and we just had to implement redundancies to make sure that, you know, we didn't go down. And that was part of why we reached out to the Ethereum community was like, hey, if we ever go down because ETH goes down, can we plug into your node remotely as, a, as an emergency backup? And that's how we found out that there were so few people running them because they were like, oh, we don't actually run a full archival node. We found out that almost nobody does in part because of the, the difficulties and problems. I mean, there's probably more examples you can give, but these kind of unstoppable systems of which Bitcoin is one. 
And yeah. I also kind of think of Pirate Bay as one as well. It seems to be like whatever they try to do to switch that off, it's impossible. But what can be learned from things like Bitcoin in future for future unstoppable systems that people want to build or the things that you want to build? What are the key learnings from that? Um, I mean, decentralization at all, at all costs. That is the, you know, the the sort of ultimate uncompromising principle. You you the second you centralize power, uh, including trust, is is the sort of the seedling of the cancer. Uh, it doesn't mean that it kills you today. It just means that you've planted the seed of demise. And so, when you think about a decentralized system like Bitcoin uh, running on centralized infrastructure then in fact, it is not decentralized. Uh, the, the enemies of Bitcoin may have to go to more extreme measures to stop it, such as you know, actually going to the ISPs, going to Amazon and DigitalOcean and shutting things down. And, but it is possible, right? So you're, you're talking about, you're basically built, laying the groundwork for a huge battle later as opposed to small battles today. Um, and so we're coming in and saying, well, we need the whole thing to be decentralized. It's got to be decentralized down to the base. Bitcoin needs a decentralized infrastructure upon which to reside if it's going to uh, remain resilient to increasing levels of attack from increasingly powerful uh, adversaries. So that's what we're attempting to do is actually lay the, the base layer foundation of a decentralized internet. And I know that sounds like a crazy statement because again, it is sort of this thing people joke about as like, a, oh, let's just build a new internet, but it actually is possible. And it's possible in a non-network effect type of way, as in we don't need everyone to buy into the concept of a decentralized internet to build a decentralized internet. You can actually build it one brick at a time, mm -hmm. uh, such that if you sort of get on board with this concept and this technology, that you gain personal private benefit from doing it, even if nobody else in the world is using it. But then every subsequent person who joins this with you, they don't just get the value of joining the network like you did. You incrementally gain value the more people that join. So it's valuable to begin with. But mm -hmm. as it scales, the value diffuses equally to everyone as it grows and grows. And that's the approach that we're taking is that this little device that goes in your living room. Yeah, it's a private server, but it's actually one brick of a future Internet. Okay, so let's talk me through the device. Talk me through Start9 and talk me through the embassy device yeah. that you guys have created. Because when you say it's one brick and you say it, talk about a decentralized internet, uh, first question is, is this like a different place on the internet or is this how I interact mm. with the internet? Yeah, so, and this is a little bit based on, on the previous question as well. Essentially, what, what we have here is you have a personal server uh, sitting on your, your, the embassy really is a casing for it. And not only is it a physical casing, but we've sort of wrapped it up in a custom operating system um, and a bunch of custom software, which essentially makes server management, what is being done on DigitalOcean, for example, extremely easy. Um, so with just the companion app, you can install services, uh, which are, you know, maybe it's Bitcoin or maybe it's the back end for a messaging app or the back end for email or data transfer or all kinds of stuff that we have plans for in the future, backend for lightning, you just click a button, pulls it down, runs that software, and suddenly you're running a full lightning node just like that. And so when you ask the question, is it a different internet? The answer is sort of yes and no. Of course, we're riding the traditional sort of internet infrastructure. Um, we haven't 
sort of done away with Wi-Fi, though we have thought about it and thought about ways that we could maybe get past that in the future. But yeah, currently the the idea is that we've essentially, in terms of inter-box communication, inter-embassy communication, when that does take place, perhaps between perhaps between Bitcoin nodes or perhaps in a messaging context, um, we've replaced sort of the traditional clear net internet structure with the Tor network and other sort of privacy sort of enhanced um, ideas. Um, and so what that means is we're riding the traditional rails, but we're doing it in such a way that you get completely novel properties. Um, so not only do you have the idea that your data is physically located on this box, when you are communicating with someone else, that is end-to-end encrypted by default. There is nothing to see or read in between those two points uh, during that trans- transition. And not only that, but if you were to cut off and see, try to examine that message, you wouldn't even know who is talking to who. There's no way to kind of, it's both de-anonymized uh, or it's anonymized and it's completely private from the base down. So let me, let me jump in and elaborate a little bit. So when you, when you talk about a decentralized internet, uh, the base layer of all of this is the, is the cables, right? You're talking about like physical telecommunications infrastructure. We are riding on that, right? It doesn't mean that we always have to ride on that. Like mesh networks are a thing. And for instance, if there were enough embassies present in any given geographic area in the future, those embassies could, with you know the proper software installed, which of course it will be, uh, mesh together and essentially form their own internet which then could, you know, through one radio signal leap, get to another internet in the next neighborhood. And next thing you know, you've actually done away with the, the, the physical infrastructure that the internet rides on today. But that is a sort of evolve, that is an emergent property of what we're building that could, that could happen in the future. In the meantime, we're actually using the existing infrastructure uh, because, it's, because it's just sitting there and ready for it. What we have bypassed, so the layer of the stack that we are really going after is ClearNet. We're going after what most people think of as the internet, which is you know HTTPS, blah, blah, blah. And what we're doing is we're using the physical cable lines, right, and modems and routers to route Tor traffic as opposed to ClearNet traffic. So most people refer to Tor and Tor websites, hidden services as the dark web. And what we're doing is we're just leveraging the dark web to do ordinary things. So we're actually trying to make the dark web the web. And that is the layer of the internet that we are trying to replace right now. The fact that replacing that layer also affords us a future prospect of replacing the infrastructure is not lost on us, but it is not a current ambition because it's not possible today. Well, so the dark web has been misbranded anyway by calling Correct. it the dark web and all the stories you read about yeah. it is <laughs> drug dealers and pedophiles. Yeah. But actually, it's it's what we're really talking about here is a private web. The private yes. web, correct. Yes. So we would love to rebrand the dark web, the private web, which is what it really is. The fact that people sell drugs on the private web makes sense if drugs are illegal in your jurisdiction. Uh, but that is not the only use case of privacy, clearly. Yeah. So let me ask you, what if what if something happens with my device? It's corrupted or stolen? Do I not run the risk of losing all my data? Yeah. So today, if you were, say, using Bitwarden, uh, which is our self-hosted password manager that we offer on the embassy, or a full Bitcoin node that had funds stored on it and you didn't have your mnemonic backed up, and your house flooded or you smashed the thing to bits with a hammer, then your data would be gone. 
uh, an immediate, which is not a, not okay, right? We are still a beta product. The the very next feature that is launching with the next version of Ambassador, Ambassador is our operating system, uh, is a data backup tool that will evolve over time and become something quite special. Actually, um, in the early days, the, the first release uh, will be a very simple USB style backup where you plug a USB in, you click a button. And the entire data of the embassy, all the service data and ambassador data is stored on this USB stick, and then you can go store it wherever you want. And you do that manually. Uh, in the very near future after that release, we're very sort of MVP and iterate style of a team. Like get something out that works and is user friendly, and then make it better and better. Uh, the next iteration of data backup for the embassy will be self-hosted backups in a cloud, wherever you want. Right, so you could host it up on a different embassy of yours. You could host it on your DigitalOcean instance. You could even put it on Google Drive. Right, it's a fully encrypted blob of data that just sits on any cloud service provider you want. And the chances of you know both DigitalOcean, Google Drive, and your friend's embassy all going down at the same time and you losing all these backups is super rare. But it's still a little bit of a uh, manual process where you're like, okay, back it up, or you know, schedule a once a day backup at this time. The holy grail of data storage and backup in our case is this ability to essentially have an automated process where your embassy is taking data that it considers to be important because maybe you've said, oh, this is really important data, crank up the redundancy, or this is data that I don't really care much about, turn the redundancy down, it's okay if I lose it. And based on your settings of how important you say something is, your embassy will automatically, using the Tor network to network with other embassies, similar to other decentralized protocols, be able to store shards of encrypted data on other people's devices. And they don't even know about this, right? Like they've turned it on, something obviously you need to opt into. It's not, you know, you join this network and my embassy will now store whole backups of, you know, broken up and encrypted data on random people's servers around the world and pay them to do so using Lightning. So I hand you a chunk of data and I'm like, keep this safe for me. And I give you some, I give you some sats. Then, you know, every two seconds I'm pinging your server, right? And I'm saying, do you have my entire data? Do you have my entire data? And you can prove to me, right? Using, using cryptography and Merkle roots that you have the entire set of data. You can basically sign a message. Your server can sign a message proving like that you have the whole set that I gave you. And every time you prove this to me, I send you one Satoshi. So it's just like, here's a Satoshi, proof that you have my data. Here's a Satoshi, proof that you have my data. And then if for whatever reason you don't, my device would automatically find somebody else to store it on and start doing that. So this is a very like kind of holy grail of <laughs> distributed data storage uh, with financial incentives system that we're talking about that is not built yet. Nobody has tackled this yet, but the pieces to make something like this possible exist uh, we internally have the ability to build something like this. It would take a lot of time, obviously, but we are actually, you know, hoping that from an open source perspective, this becomes like a, a big project that lots of people can collaborate on and take interest in. But it's not, it's not today and it's not tomorrow. It's the day after tomorrow. Next up, I talked to Matt and Aaron more about privacy and Bitcoin. But before that, I've got a message from my amazing sponsors. So first up, let's talk about Sportsbet. Have you checked out Sportsbet.io? They are the best place for online gaming. And you know why? Why are they the best? Because they accept Bitcoin, of course, because they're absolute badasses. And I spent a lot of time with the team. I even flew over to Estonia to meet them, hang out, grab beers. I also hung out with the CEO. They don't just accept Bitcoin. They actively promote it. And they're going to be doing a lot of cool stuff over this next year. 
Now, we do have a little bit of football to clear up before the end of the season. We've got the Champions League and the Europa League starting back up. I'm very much looking forward to seeing Man City play Real Madrid. And to celebrate this return, Sportsbet are challenging you to complete a number of missions where you can win prizes in Bitcoin. They've even got a one Bitcoin prize. You can find out all about this on their website. Head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. That is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Also, we've got to talk about Casa. We have to talk about Bitcoin security now. This is something I let go recently. This is something I'd been putting off. And I've got myself now set up with Casa. I've got absolute peace of mind now I've set up their multi-sig. Now, if you have been leaving a lot of Bitcoin on an exchange because you're worried about holding it yourself, or if you're worried about the risk of using a single hardware wallet, then there is no better solution out there than Casa. I can't put into words how much I absolutely love this product. Now, with Casa, it could not be easier to protect your Bitcoin from hackers, your own silly personal mistakes, in-person attacks, device failures, and so much more. And the great thing about Casa is they have a product for every Bitcoiner. With Casa Gold, you get triple the security of a hardware wallet for only $10 a month. With Casa Platinum, you get their three or five multi-sig, the best protection for large Bitcoin holders at a great price. And with Casa Diamond, you get the full service offering, including a customized personal security review, inheritance, and of course, their best in class security. It is time to get your security shit together. It is time to check out Casa. You have no excuse. With their gold product, they even have a free trial. So if you want to find out more, head over to keys.casa. That's K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. So looking forward, obviously, we want financial privacy because we understand the risks associated with people being able to, or governments being able to track our finances. We want privacy within our communications with regards to emails. We don't want them read by Google, uh, our, our uh, private uh, communications, perhaps something like we'd be using something like Signal, but you know, there's other things such as Telegram, etc. What other things are really important that you think people should be considering related to their privacy? Because I'll give you another example. Location privacy is obviously hugely important. And I switched off all my location tracking things on my phone at one point and actually just made my phone really difficult to use. A number of things I, I wanted, <laughs> you know, are very useful. The, the mapping technology is really useful even doing searches on google is really useful where it knows where my location is so sometimes there's a trade-off there like how do we deal with things like that yeah so in in the short term um there's going to be a trade-off and you'll have to make that trade-off in the long term uh and we're talking maybe not the day after tomorrow but maybe two days (laughs) after tomorrow (laughs) so on thursday of this week um but in the long in the long enough term there is no reason why any feature that you can imagine. Um, so Google Maps with location services turned on, et cetera. There is no reason why all of that software, all of those features can't be hosted in a distributed decentralized fashion across a network of embassies. It is just a matter of gradually and slowly, probably over a lot of time, hopefully a lot quicker once the open source community is sort of unleashed on our product with the, the release of the SDK that's sort of forthcoming like a gradual migration of these features that we've come to know and rely on from the traditional sort of centralized server backing clear net web down into the decentralized embassy backed um, or other personal server backed private web. Um, there's just no, nothing in principle that makes any feature that you can see today just sort of not replicatable with enough development time and, and effort. Yeah. 
Yeah, if you want to get a taste of our roadmap and what the possibilities are, there's a neat GitHub repo called Awesome uh, Awesome Self-Hosted. Um, and it's just a huge collection of self-hosted open source software. And you, you start to realize as you look through this list of like a thousand different projects and software that almost everything that you can do in a centralized, trusted, third-party way you can also do in a self-hosted, distributed, decentralized way. Uh, the problem is technical expertise. The problem is that every single one of those projects has a readme that involves a command line, and that requires a, you know, a, a server, either physical or cloud-based, and that requires an understanding of Linux, and that may require other people to be on the network, and you're just you're done before you start. And it's just like you know, a self-hosted project management tool instead of Jira, well, who does that when Jira is a push of a button and 15 bucks a month? Why would you buy servers and set it up yourself, you know, with all that effort? So our roadmap is actually not a if you build it, they will come strategy. They're already here. They've been here for decades, actually. The open source software ecosystem is rich and growing by the day. And m most of those projects are founded and run and maintained by sort of the starving artist types. It's these developers who are passionate about what they're building and put their lifeblood into these projects only to you know, have a few technical people from their Telegram chat run it and provide feedback and contribute. And some obviously are more successful than others, but um, we are trying to unleash things, right? We're not saying that we're gonna build this platform. Okay, devs now come and develop for us, right? We're building this platform that opens the floodgates of things you have already built such that they can be used by average non-technical people all over the world. And does the device sit between my, essentially between my say laptop and my router? Yes, correct. The, you commute, you interface with the embassy from either your laptop, desktop or mobile device. And it's all over Tor. So even the traffic between your device and your embassy, your device meaning your mobile device and your embassy is private, encrypted, end-to-end, -end, secure with no trusted third parties. You are riding on the, the ISPs, right? Like you're still going through the router, through the modem, through the cable, but yeah. But so at the time, say I connected, set it up, from that point on, all my data go, coming in and out of my property is routed over Tor? All of it. All of it. Yeah. So that's interesting. But one of the problems I've always had with, with Tor is you slow down your internet usage. Yes. Sure. Yep. So, so that, yep, that is a short-term trade-off that we are very well aware of and know how to fix. <laughs> so we do not intend to ride on the Tor rails forever. Tor for us primarily solved not the privacy problem. The, the, mm -hmm. the privacy aspects of Tor were like a really cool, you know, nice to have. Uh, there are other ways to achieve privacy. I mean, you can use, you know, shared secrets and encrypted lines of communication. You don't have to onion route things, right? You can do end-to-end -end encryption by exchanging secrets between devices. Um, Tor primarily solved for us the addressability problem, which is that normally when you have a device in your home, and you want to talk to it from outside of your home, you have to set up port forwarding and potentially get a static IP address from your, I, from your internet service provider. And that in itself is a hassle and a technical feat. It's not crazy, but it is enough to deter most people. 
So for us, and it's not just about you talking from your phone to the embassy in your home and needing to find that thing. Like literally it's IP address on the internet. Like how do you find it? Uh, it's also about embassies finding each other, right? Bitcoin nodes finding each other. They, just, they can discover each other uh, easily and without having to worry about any kind of port forwarding or static IPs using Tor. Uh, it's a it's a nap punching technique that allows us to sort of circumvent the ISPs and the routers and say, okay, your embassy, Ambassador OS, the operating system of your embassy, and every single service that runs on the embassy is hosted on its own hidden service with unique .onion URL, meaning you can find this thing in the world through the haze of the internet, through any Tor browser. All you need to do is open up a browser that's capable of resolving .onion URLs, Brave, Firefox, Tor, or forthcoming our own. So hint, hint on the product roadmap. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and essentially mm -hmm. discover your embassy uh, simply by knowing it's Onion URL. Okay, yeah. so what, what are the risks with this? So for example, say I set up my embassy, I connect to the internet, but there's going to be certain things, certain websites I use where I'm going to leave kind of like a trail, whether it's going sure. on to Amazon to buy something, you know, signing into Twitter, something like that. It, it feels like it's whilst you can encrypt the data going in and out, it's very difficult to have a private experience on the net. Is this going to force other companies to change and offer some kind of private experience there as well? Or is there like this acceptance that we have this public and private profile and they exist side by side? I guess the first thing that jumps to mind is that there there are some companies, big companies. The one I have in mind is, is Facebook, actually, um, which do have, uh, which are hosting versions of their site in the Tor network itself. Which means you could actually use Facebook in such a way. I wouldn't necessarily recommend ever using Facebook for for the record, but um, there are ways that you could communicate end to end in this in through the Tor network. Um, why, why with that said, I, what's your problem with Facebook? I know it's obvious to others, but. Oh, sure, 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 sure. I mean, I, this actually touches on where some of the roadmap stuff that you were talking about before and important features to bring down into the embassy. Um, but I mean, the issue with Facebook and God, I've been reading just a ton about this. It's extremely concerning. Uh, it's just the amount of data that's being collected, possibly without almost certainly without your knowing it in incredibly, in some ways, somewhat nefarious. I was actually just reading that the e Facebook SDK as of 2018 so this is something that any app that you've ever installed onto your phone that OAuths with Facebook or even gives the option to OAuth with Facebook tells Facebook every time you've opened that app, even if you don't even log into Facebook, you try to OAuth with something else and Facebook knows what apps you've installed on your phone. So it's just like an outrageous, um, it is its own surveillance state in and of itself. And that data is weaponizable and has been weaponized for hyper-targeted marketing campaigns. Um, and I, you, that's almost a really generous way to say it. It's hyper-targeted sort of political manipulation campaigns um, and well, disinformation the, uh, campaigns. This is the Cambridge Analytica stuff. Yeah, some, some of that is coming from Cambridge Analytica. Some of that's being hijacked by you know, Russia, uh, political dissidents out of, or uh, political efforts out of there. But when you have all of that data in one place, and I mean – the you know combine that with uh, machine learning and big data and um, all of the AI stuff we have available. Oh my God! Like uh, it's it's horrifying, sort of how precisely you can bombard people with fake or altered or biased news articles or whatever, and get them to check, get them to flip, uh, change their mind, do this, do that. 
Um, and so, I mean, we're, we're far away from this, but social networking needs to be brought down to a level where, um, you know, Facebook could say this or that about, oh, we're not going to do that anymore. Oh, we're not going to do that anymore. But at the end of the day, every incentive that they have is to collect this data and sell it to anybody. And the only way I can see to solve this problem for, for sure is to take a social network like that and blast it into pieces all over hosted you know, on all of these different embassies or private personal servers. And then there is no single source of data anymore. If you want to know, you know, what, whatever they said in the, the documentary, 5,000 data points on people in America, you'd have to go to each person in America and ask for their data because they're the only ones that have it. And that seems like the only, the only possible way this works in the future. Sure. Unless they've shared it publicly on a social network, like unless they're openly yeah. advertising that they stand for or against something. Sure. Yes, that's true. But I mean, the data we're talking about is like, you could say that, but you know, on Facebook, there's so much more data that's also being yes. tracked. It's like what you have liked. It's what you, what articles you've clicked on. It's stuff that you're not sharing publicly. It's just you using the platform. Um, and that gives the expressivity of, that just enhances the data to a point where it's just it can become lethal. So are you are you envisaging we're moving to a world where perhaps we stop having public profiles or people would maybe choosing now not to have public profiles on the internet and instead just have some kind of anonymous identity which they use for interacting with different services. So for example, if I wanted to shop from Amazon, could I have a, an anonymous identity to shop with them and only share the information I need to for my shopping and you know get rid of something like uh, Facebook? Or do you envisage that, that that's not really... Because I don't see that as particularly realistic for most people. I also don't think it'd be terribly helpful. Like if you take a platform like Reddit, which is pseudo-anonymous at a minimum, so you have you know just a username and if you do Reddit right, you nobody should know who it associates to. Nevertheless, Reddit has a ton of data about that username. You sell that data and you start advertising to that specific user, whoever that is, um, and you could you know, change their mind about something, get them to buy a product, get them to vote for a particular candidate. It doesn't matter who's on the other end. The danger we have is not knowing, is not targeting a single person because they don't like Aaron. It's targeting a single person because they know everything about that person. And the way that comes about is because you have a centralized platform that has all of the users in one place. Okay. That's the real problem. Well, it's also vulnerable to, to say, like a hacking instance, like what happened with Twitter, right? Like, it's not just the targeted, oh, yeah, for sure. Sure. you know, manipulation efforts or even advertising, which a lot of people even like, um, to receive ads that are more, you know, relevant to them. It's, it's also just this honeypot of data where it's just, you know, if I'm a hacker and I want, you know, the most bang for my buck, I'm going to attack the thing that has the most bucks. Um, and I might put significant resources into that. Even I might even be a nation state. Um, whereas if the data is distributed, um, the effort of attacking each individual compartment of data might be, you know, a little bit less effort than attacking Twitter, say. Like, I don't have to put as much resources into it, but the payout is negligible. Like, you know what I mean? Like if you had a distributed network of, of bios, say, that were never meant to be sort of all shared publicly, uh, I, I would have to attack every single embassy. To get your information, I have to attack you. To get Aaron's information, I have to attack Aaron. And so I'm going to spend all my time, you know, nickel and diming uh, my, my way through life. And so the, the attack surface just sort of shrinks to zero because it doesn't make sense. 
Yeah. Um, I, Peter, I want to go back real quick to something that you had said a minute ago, where I want to clear up a potential misunderstanding that the, that a, a listener might have, which is that your embassy is not acting as sort of a gateway, generally speaking, to the whole internet. Like you don't use your embassy to browse Amazon.com, right? You you don't. No, I understand. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's like you use the embassy is housing services that are hosted on hidden services. Tor hidden services. And so you would interact with them directly. And if you wanted to do something else, you sort of go over to the to the dark side, the clear net, right? You that there's like two different modes of operating and that they run in parallel. They don't actually overlap. So the way that we view our forthcoming browser actually, the way that we are designing it is to reiterate this concept that I just explained, which is like there's the there's like the I'm going to invert dark and light here. It's like the dark mode where everything you do is being tracked, yeah. right? You're using the normal internet. And these are anytime you open an app on your phone, anytime you, you know, open a web browser on your phone and go to blah.com, that it's all just like out in the open. You should assume that everything's being tracked in public. But if you want to engage private mode, like incognito mode, you sort of launch this browser. And inside of this browser, you, you are safe to browse these Tor hidden services that are running on your own physical server in your own home, knowing that there are no middlemen involved, no means of intercepting or investigating the, the, the data. Um, and, and it's sort of a safe place. It's like a padded room where you can feel free to just kind of do your things knowing that it's safe. And then gradually, as the functionality of that mode, of private mode, grows and grows and grows, it can sort of encroach upon and eventually overtake the, the other mode as feature parity is reached uh, in various applications, right? And eventually you, you sort of toss your phone, right? And, and you get a phone that <laughs> engages privacy mode by default. And then if you really need to access what, whatever remnants there are of the existing prior internet, you can sort of engage unprivate mode as a choice. Yes, because I can't, I can't envisage a scenario where people don't have public profiles and things they're doing publicly. Um, you know, there's certain things, you know, for example, the best parts of Twitter are the discussions between people who have chosen to dox themselves on Twitter. Like, I am Peter McCormack. This yeah. is what I do, and I represent myself. Like, if everything moves to anonymous and anonymous identities, we know the quality of certain experiences, usually with regards to commenting, talking, discussing ideas, the, the quality drops. So I, I can see there's scenarios where like, um, okay, I want to be using Bitcoin. I don't want to be tracked. I want I want this all over tour, which is great. I can also see scenarios whereby I don't want my emails read or I want to be sending messages and I want them privately. I can even also even envisage uh, e-commerce scenarios where there's certain things I want to be buying, which is completely anonymous. At the same time, I think there's a whole part of the web whereby there's things that I won't want to be anonymous. But really, this is just like one step up from, you know, we know incognito mode really is <laughs> right, primarily right. used for people right. watching porn, right? But, <laughs> but, but at the same time, what we're saying here is this is like, these will be certain scenarios where people will be self-aware now, like I need to be in this private mode for these certain things I'm doing. Yeah, so let me let me just speak a little bit to your comments about uh, anonymous, sort of anonymous versus public profiles, mm. um, because I think that's kind of getting at it's a little bit maybe it's maybe a little bit of a misunderstanding perhaps of what we could possibly do with these technologies. So, for example, 
depending on the social network you're looking at. So Twitter is a very public sort of, it's a very public kind of oriented network in the sense that if I just sort of follow you and I really pay attention to everything you're doing, um, I can pretty much see everything you're doing. And so in, in a way, like uh, potentially I could set up a bunch of bots and I could have them follow a bunch of people and I could just start to mine data from what is public facing. And in that context, there's not really much that we would be able to do. It's just sort of based on the structure of the social network itself. On the other hand, you take a network like Facebook. Facebook is a different story because you can have a public profile where a lot of the stuff that you're doing as a member with that profile is and should be private. So you have your messaging with other people. You have interactions with person A that you don't want person B to be able to see. This is all the, the privacy settings that they have, et cetera. And so because even though Tor is anonymous, which means that if you were to cut traffic or intercept traffic between point A and point B, you wouldn't know who's talking to each other. Once that traffic appears on the other end and gets decrypted, that could have your public information in it. So I could do, we could do Facebook as public profiles. I would have my public profile. Um, all of the sort of individual servers that are talking to each other are spraying these profiles all around. So we all get a bunch of them and see them. And the experience looks a lot like Facebook, but what is private on that platform, which is the stuff that you're doing that I can't see, um, stays private because there's no central Facebook that's collecting all of it from everybody. So it's really not a distinction between public or anonymous profiles in, in a social network. It's really a distinction between regardless of public anonymous, what is extracting, what has its octopus hands in every single person's private life and is pulling it out. Um, and that's what we don't have. The, the main the main point here is that, it's exactly what Aaron's getting at, is that there needs to be a clear distinction between what is private and what is public, that you should have to sort of opt into the public side of things. Obviously, Twitter only functions as a public forum, right? Nobody here is arguing that public forums and social media shouldn't exist and that I shouldn't be able to shout to the sky who I am and what I believe, right? That, that is crazy to, to take that stance. It's that I should know when I'm doing that. I should know what data is being collected by whom and what it's being used for and the ability to not opt out, but to opt in in the first place. Like we are shooting for a private by default approach to technological infrastructure and then going, are you wanting to share something now, knowing that anyone on earth is going to see it and harvest that data and do analytics on it and advertise to you in whatever way they see fit. It's like, yes, I want to share. I'm willing, that, that's a price. That's the price I'm paying. I want to share what I have to say. Um, but that the default existence was for thousands of years and will be again private by nature. That conversations that you and I have are private inherently. We don't have to take extra steps, extra technological steps or precautions for it to be private. It should just be private. And then if we want to share that conversation, like we're going to do with this, it's recorded and then we're going to share it, we can. Are there, are there any risks here that, from my property, it is exposed that there's a, a, a large amount of encrypted data going in and out, and that would create any suspicion around my property. <laughs> uh, hmm. So there are certain places on Earth where Tor itself is blocked, exactly for that kind of using that type of surveillance capability. Like your ISP, mm -hmm. if you have lots of Tor traffic coming in and out of your modem, is going to be known, right? Like they won't have any idea where it's coming from or who it's going to or 
why you're doing it or what the content is, but they can be like, he's doing private things. Um, and so certain places will just restrict Tor traffic. Uh, and to get around this, Tor, the foundation, has means of what are called bridge nodes where you can, you know, kind of, you know, cleverly route around them, but it's not perfect. And sometimes they're hard to find and the bridge nodes have to be publicly advertised so they can be taken down. And so it's a constant cat and mouse game. So the key here is to flood the network with private traffic, right? If you make the dark web, the private web, and everyone starts using the private web, then it's an all or nothing game. It, it becomes a like a less targeted approach where you, the ISPs can't just say, okay, this one person out of a thousand is using Tor, therefore we can focus on them. If 90, you know, 999 out of a thousand are using Tor, then it becomes this like, okay, it, you sort of force it to an all or nothing game, in which case, you know, it, it's all like, as in everything will be allowed because right. the alternative would be shut the internet down. You know what I mean? And everything goes dark. And that's a terrifying uh, future possibility or whatever. But hopefully by the time these technologies proliferate, we won't even be riding on those rails anymore. So another sort of product, you know, hat tip here is a future version of the embassy uh, will be a router, right? Um, it'll be an optional kind of add-on feature for a uh, higher tier product, but it will actually double as, as your home router which affords us immense uh, capabilities, not only for uh, ensuring you know, uh, resisting censorship, but also managing other home IoT devices. So security cameras, doorbells, door locks, things like that could all be managed yeah. on, a, on a home LAN and governed by a sort of a, a brain right, of the operation without sharing any of that data or information outside of your home. Yeah, I, IoT, is, IoT is a scary place right now. Well, I've I've heard about like like heart monitors being able to be hacked with inside people, or baby monitors being able to be to be hacked, yeah. and you can you can hack into someone's home and and like look at the cameras inside the home. And wasn't there like some weird baby monitor where someone was talking to a child and shit like that? Going <laughs> I think on? I heard about that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, but that stuff is scary. That is scary that someone can get in inside your home and. That stuff does freak me out as as an individual. One of the other things, like one of the consequences of having Bitcoin as like essentially kind of uh, censorship resistant money, which which is uh, trustless, permissionless, etc., is that it is able to be used by nefarious characters. You know, we have to accept that North Korea is using this, Iran's using this, Venezuela is using this, and I guess there are outside of personal desires for improving our own privacy, there is the the reality that what you're creating also will be used by nefarious characters like how do you think about the morality of that yeah i think um the the important thing to start with at least is that we think about it a lot uh we take this very seriously i think there's a bit of a tendency especially kind of in the cryptocurrency communities to kind of gloss over questions like this Bitcoin's cool. Bitcoin does a lot of good stuff. If it's used for evil, whatever, like it's not part of our, it's not what the technology was designed for and whatever, but um, it's something that we we're really thinking a lot about. Um, and I think for us, it comes down to a sort of variety of different things. The most important one uh, I'll leave, leave for the end, but it really comes down to what if we didn't make it, what's the morality of, around not having a device like this? Um, I think that's the most important thing, but let me say a couple of things before, before we get there. Um, one thing to note for sure is that 
we are making something that already exists more convenient. Um, so we're riding on sort of cryptography and protocols that have existed now for 20 years um, that criminals, whoever these people are, certainly know about. It's not like this stuff is completely secret. It takes a fair bit of technical expertise to use this stuff easily or to use it well. Um, but certainly if you're livelihood depends on doing criminal activity and not being caught by having your emails read by Google, we at least imagine that it wouldn't, wouldn't be out of the, the realm of possibility to be using this technology already. What we're really doing is making it more convenient and thus allowing me and you and the non-criminal users of Bitcoin, like most of us and the non-criminal people in general, we're allowing them to have access to the exact same defenses and tools um, that otherwise criminals have. And that actually protects us from those very criminals who may be organizing stuff like hacks on Twitter or hacks on centralized clearnet stuff. So it protects us from them. And it also protects us from um, all of the sort of government overreach and the corporate overreach that we're, we're seeing all, all over the world. So that, that's, a, that's an important point is that this stuff already exists. And there is the potential that we're sort of enabling some small time crooks uh, to kind of get access to some technologies that otherwise they don't have the expertise and don't have the time to learn. But the benefits, I think, are, are massively outweigh that. So, yeah, so I've been looking into uh, sort of a lot of a lot of the sort of ethical arguments around around this stuff in order to be able to deal with that question well and to convince myself even that this is definitely on the right side of history. Um, so a second thing to definitely look at is sort of legal precedent in the various countries in the world where this may be, may be useful. Uh, and in the United States where we're selling first um, and where it's in some sense the hardest sell because we have a lot of sort of liberties that are protected. Um, it's very interesting that the Fourth Amendment here, which is the protection against unreasonable search and seizure, just neatly and without any sort of debate as far as I'm aware, I'm not a Supreme Court justice, but based on my readings of these cases, um, just very neatly puts what we're doing um, as protected by the Fourth Amendment. So stuff like currently there is what's called the third party doctrine. And I don't want to take things too far off the rails, but um, it essentially says that when you custody information with a third party, the government can gain access to that information without a search warrant. So it, based on the fact that you are sort of giving this information away freely it can be argued that you're not treating it as private information. And if you're not treating it privately, then the government doesn't need to get a search warrant in order to look at it. It's sort of in plain view in some sense. Um, no such argument can possibly be made for what we're doing at Start9 because there is no custodying third party. Uh, and so to even attempt to look at uh, an embassy or the traffic between the embassy, to even attempt to decrypt or to understand that, would be illegal without a search warrant. Um, so when you think about the ethics of this, it seems to me like the Constitution itself, the U.S. Constitution, is very much, um, and the sort of precedent that has grown out of that, very much is designed to protect this kind of thing specifically. And so privacy is built in at the base of, of this country. Um, and I know that the U.K., I think, is probably a little bit, uh, sort of has a bit less in terms of civil liberties, but I imagine it's pretty similar and it's protected. So I, I think that's another important point. And then finally, the ethics of not doing this. Uh, the ethics of not having this device are, you know, you can see what's happening in China specifically, uh, the censorship around 
sort of the Muslim communities uh, that's that's taking hold right now is 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 very scary. Uh, censorship around even Tiananmen Square massacre, the 25th anniversary. Um, there's a lot of self-censorship being reported because if you know that everything you're doing is being watched and people are actually being taken out of their houses and imprisoned, you're probably not going to say what you actually think. And it's like, uh, you know, when you, when it just shakes out at the end, it just doesn't even seem like it's a close call. Um, so there are, you know, there are dangerous uses of many technologies, including ours, but that's sort of, that's sort of where our head's at at the moment. All right. So what's, what's the big plan here? Like, it's obviously very cool what you're doing. I'm going to be checking out the device and spend a bit of time. But what's the big plan for you guys here? So Start9 uh, as a company um, began with really my attempt to set up a lightning node uh, on my DigitalOcean box at the time. And um, something I'm definitely capable of doing. Um, I have a background in software engineering, and I went through to uh, do this. And it immediately occurred to me that nobody would do this uh, unless you had enormous time uh, and expertise uh, on your hands. So, you know, at the time, uh, Aaron, Keegan, Aiden, and myself, the four founders of Start9, were incubating uh, a bit chaotically by design, in fact, to discover and and um, pursue a business. And so I went to, uh, I believe it was Keegan first, and was just like, why is this so hard? Uh, I should just be able to push a button and have a lightning node running. And he's, well, it's, you know, obviously not that easy. You have to have Bitcoin installed first, which means you have to have a Bitcoin full node running. And that has its own set of instructions. And and obviously I knew all this, but he was sort of just reinforcing this idea that it is a techie process. Um, So we started looking onto the market for uh, solutions that already existed and found a couple, uh, namely Casa at the time was the the real uh, known solution to a plug and play Bitcoin and Lightning full node. So we we dug in and we we found a lot of things that we liked. Uh, We actually had a a dinner with uh, Nick Newman and and Jameson here in Denver and talked to them about uh, Casa and their plans for the future. And, you know, they have since discontinued their node product, which is something we actually sensed at the time based on that dinner. Uh, But something Keegan and I were pushing for even during that dinner was, what about email? What about messaging? What about data? Why just have a plug-and-play Bitcoin full node when you could have a plug-and-play personal server that runs all sorts of self-hosted open-source applications and protocols? Uh, And they seemed interested. I think that that had been kicked around at Casa, but it became very clear to us that they were not going to pursue that sort of holy grail of personal computing. And so we looked at each other and we were like, do do we want to pursue that? Like, do we really want to try to bite this off? Um, and we ran it with by Aaron here and Aiden and not only determined that this was something we wanted to do uh, and something that was was good and, and righteous even in the context of history, but something that we actually could do. We believed that we had the expertise to pull something like that off. And so we, we just we hit the ground running and, um, you know, we launched our first node uh, server. I don't want to call it a node because it's really much more than that. We launched our first personal server uh, about six months later. Okay, so very interesting. Like I said, I'm going to have a play with it. I'm, I'm going to come back to you and talk to you about my experience with it. But look, if people want to find out more, where do they go to? Because it's obviously super interesting. Our website is startninelabs.com. Uh, that's S-T-A-R-T with a nine labs.com. Um, we are Start9Labs on Twitter. 
We have a mailing list that you can sign up for, uh, but and we have a Telegram channel that you can join, which is uh, Start9 Labs Community. Um, we will be launching another community channel on a self-hosted infrastructure called Matrix, which is a kind of do-it-yourself Telegram Slack that will soon be available on the embassy that people can join. Uh, so a few different avenues, but the starting point is startnavelabs.com. It's very cool. Very interesting. You're doing very important work. I'm really glad you guys came on the podcast. Great to talk to you about it. And look, I, I wish you all the best. Hopefully we'll, we'll talk again in the future. I'll be all set up and we'll do round two. Yeah, let, let me know once you got it set up. Cool, man. Thanks. Take care. Good luck, guys. Thanks for having us on, man. See you. Hey, thanks so much, Peter. Okay. What did you make of that? Did you enjoy that? I think what Matt and Aaron are building with Start9 is really, really fucking cool. It's obvious that they're in the early stages at the moment, and I think that trying to make privacy easier by bringing it to the less tech-savvy audience is important work. As I said, I've got my embassy. I'm going to be setting it up over the weekend. I'm going to be having to play with this. As ever, thanks for listening to the show. If you do have any questions, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. If you want to support the show, head over to my website, whatbitcoindid.com. Click on the support section. And as I mentioned in the intro, the trailer has dropped for my new four-part series about the heavy metal band, The Ghost Inside. It's called 1,333 Days. It tells this amazing story of how they're in a fatal bus crash in 2015 and their four-year journey to their comeback show in Los Angeles, a show that I was fortunate enough to go to. Yep, so the trailer is up on Defiance news check that out and that show will be dropping next week outside of that have an amazing weekend and i will see you all soon